Hello everybody, James here, and it's Franchise University with Shane Douglas himself, there is the eponymous Shane Douglas. We're going to be talking, I mean, I do the plugs on various other shows, I know, but this one, this has no advertising, no plugs, and we're just going to get straight into it, and uh, one more thing very quickly is that we still haven't fixed the microphone on Shane uh, on Shane's setup, we will get that sorted for the next episode, please, let's hope we do. So, <laughs> I, I, trust me, it's, it's not Shane's fault or anyone's fault, it's just a technical disappointment after technical disappointment hardware software the whole thing but for this episode we're going to be talking about halloween havoc 1989 the very very first uh episode iteration of halloween havoc ever so it was a uh, wcw uh, uh concept and it didn't seem that much different to any other pay-per-view except for a bit of extra <laughs> dressing quite frankly that we'll be talking yeah. about later on but Shane, I want to give you some news from around this period. So are you ready to hear it? Yes, please. Okay, WCW news around this time. And I really hope you've got something to say about this because I've written quite a bit about it. There is potential return of Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard uh, after quickly dropping the WWF tag titles to demolition to Turner. It is scuppered. Because after it's already revealed that they have left the WWF, or at least thinking about leaving the WWF, Tully is like scheduled and then fails a drug test. So, do you know the story about all this, or do I need to carry on? You can keep carrying on. I, I do remember hearing it, but I, I, the particulars, it's, that's a million years ago. Yeah. So, uh, I was speaking with Tully if, uh, last month, I think. The interview came out, and he said that he had $250,000 a year contract on the table with Turner. And then it got yanked when they found out that the drug test failure had come up. So essentially, he couldn't go to WCW, couldn't go to WWF. And then shortly after that, he decides to retire. So uh, I know from talking with Tully that he's still not over that one. Yeah, I bet. I remember at the time hearing they were coming back and there was a bit of excitement uh, because they had just, you know, I've I've been around them and, and, you know, always was talking to Arn. And uh, so I, it was a bit of excitement about it, like, like a buzz, you know, that, that, that they were returning. And then that hit. But at, at that time, though, like, as I recall, sitting in the dressing room and hearing this, there were always so many rumors that were floating around that you were you know, pre-internet. Like, we weren't sure, like, okay, is somebody making this up? Is this, like, to throw the fans off the scent so they could more surprise when they do pop up? And then, like, right, he said, when they announced retirement, because he was fairly young to have retired at the time that he did. And, you know, was really in the crux part of his career. And uh, at, at the time, I remember thinking to myself, like, oh, yeah, he's, he's he'll stay retired, right? He'll be, he'll be back in six months or whatever. And Bless has already really stuck to that. It, it, uh, you know, he, he would dabble into and out of the, the business here and there after that. But, you know, by and large, Tully had been the one person that retired from wrestling that sort of stayed retired from wrestling, right? <laughs> Yeah, well, do you know, funny, we mentioned Killer Khan last week, and he genuinely did. He never wrestled another match. He made his money and left. Yep. Um, a theory going around at the time, and tell me if you heard this at the time, was that Tully was trying to influence WWF wrestlers to jump to the NWA. And that, I don't know how conspiratorial this is getting, but this is maybe why Vince maybe scheduled a drug test. He fails and then to screw him over. I don't know how conspiratorial that is or how truthful that is, but is there anything you may have heard? I don't remember hearing that, but again, like this time, you know, the the drug test, the drug testing stuff came up in WCW 
later than than it did in WWF. So I'm not sure. Um, I'm, well, I'm sure they would have had the testing at that time. But uh, to think that Vince would have done that, like throw that off, because you, you could very easily see where they would – if you were WCW, you could say, hey, Tolly, we know you're going to piss dirty. Come back in two weeks, you know, or whatever. Uh, so my guess is that it's just probably more conspiracy theory. And to be honest with you, at the time, Vince, I'm sure was giving it more attention than he was letting on to us. But in those conversations, like I mentioned in the last week's episode, you know, the how much I didn't talk to, to Kevin Dunn about things. Uh, Vince, there was one time I wanted to do one of the vignettes and I wanted somebody, one of the grips to make some noise in the back periodically. And this is after Hogan had just gone to WCW. And he did a promo one time where he talked about he had all the Irishmen, the O'Leary's, the O'Malley's, and yes, even the McMahon's quaking in their boots. And I wanted to fire back and say something like finally, like after several times of making noise saying, Mr. Bully, will you sit down and take your seat? Maybe you'll finally learn something about this business. Mm -hmm. And Vince said to me, no, no. So I love it. It's great, but we don't do that here. Never talk about the enemy. And so, uh, like, the fact that I would think that Vince was spending portions of his day going, okay, what's going on in WCW and how can we derail that? I mean, let's be honest. He was pretty much beating, once he took over, he's beating them pretty handily. So I don't think he gave it much notion. It seems to me in my recollection that WCW is more always playing catch-up to Vince than Vince would have been thinking about them. Now, the state of the company in late 1989 is said to be one of frustration and unhappiness with injuries and a raft of bad weather contributing to no-shows. To make things worse, Hurricane Hugo gets some events cancelled and even crazier, there's a very famous earthquake that hit California that ended up causing baseball's World Series Game 4 to be postponed and ended up uh, running, uh, when it was rescheduled, running against Halloween Havoc. So <laughs> that may have... Uh, uh, apparently, it did quite well on uh, the buy rates, though, so having said that. Uh, also, Jim Hurd is coming up to his first year as Executive Vice President of WCW and making most people's lives miserable. <laughs> Venue <laughs> attendance has tanked. Viewership ratings have lowered a bit. Who was the person you would ask to speak to if you wanted questions about your directions or matches at this time? So basically, who was like, in charge of you or who would be your liaison to the office at this point? Well, again, it depends on where you were standing. If you were in, if you were at the building, you know, out, like say they're running Dallas. If you were in Dallas, it would be somebody in the building. Uh, I would later find out uh, that Jim Hurd was quote unquote, ultimately the final arbiter of things. And uh, that, you know, the, the, the infamous story of me having my final discussion with Jim uh, as condescendedly as he possibly had, could have put that talk. Uh, turned out that he wasn't quite aware of what he was looking at. Uh, so, yeah, Jim was uh, brought in, my understanding at the time, was because he had been successful at, at Pizza Hut. And, you know, I say this all the time, it's not like wrestling is some, like, uh, monolith that's impossible for anybody to crack and figure out if you haven't been in it. Obviously, you're not much better if you have been in it and been successful in it. Uh it, it's really, it, it, it plays in between all the genres. It's a genre unto itself. It's not really acting, although acting does come into it. It's not really sport, although athleticism does come into it. It, it parlays itself someplace in between, you know, all of those entities. 
And so it's never really one foot this or one foot that. Uh, and the same thing with business. I'm sure Jim Hurd, as a CEO of a company, probably knew where to turn the buttons and which one, which nails they hit. But it doesn't mean that you're going to have any clue of how to launch and create a character. I always talk about the nuances, right? The nuanceable stuff. That's the stuff that's damn difficult to pick up. I'm sure Dutch probably has his own euphemisms for that. But having been successful like Dutch has been at booking, looking at somebody and coming up with a character for that person and then figuring out how to push that character and foster it along until it becomes like a household name uh, or successful, <clears throat> uh, which I, I guess would be the same thing. That's where the, the great bookers separate themselves from everybody else. Anybody can go, okay, uh, James, let me think here. I'm going to make you a, okay, a bath separatist or I'm going to make you a this or a that. <laughs> Right, that's, that's easy enough. Now, how do we take that and make that character make sense? How do we digest it? Because remember, we've got a lot of kids watching. We have adults watching. There's a big span of age groups. The ones that are great at it, the ones that have done it successfully, they know that stuff very, very well. And I would bet last dollar to a donor that Jim Hurd wouldn't have any more idea of how to do that than any fan watching this podcast right now. Uh, and, and that's probably being condescending to the fans uh, because the, the fans that watch, I doubt that, that Jim Hurd was much of a wrestling aficionado. Uh, he, in my few discussions with him, I don't recall us ever getting deep into the philosophy of character development or anything like that. It was all about money and this, you know, the, the, the business side of stuff. Uh, so, but he was ultimately, if you remember me telling the story, I was just going to fly straight home whenever I walked out of WCW in, in Baton Rouge. And I called Eddie Gilbert from the airport. And Eddie said, don't fly direct to Pittsburgh, fly through Atlanta, spend the night and come see Jim in the morning. Because he was the one that smartened me up to the fact that decisions were being made in the office. And then when it would get out to the field, say Dallas or Pittsburgh or Cincinnati, uh, it would change out there. And then if Jim would ask anything about that when they got back, hey, I thought he was supposed to win or this one was supposed to lose, they would say, oh, well, something happened or you know, they screwed up or whatever. They put the heat on the talent. And so we had the, these multiple head uh, uh, brain trusts, the, the brain trust that was in the office that never came out to the field, the brain trust that was in the field, then the booking committee where it was, you know, the circular booking committee where they could all point the guns at each other and uh, – it was just an absolute epic how not to do this. And, you know, it doesn't stand to reason. It's not Jim Cornette's fault that Jim Cornette was looking out for Midnight Express on that booking committee or that Flair was looking out for his stuff with the horseman or that, you know, each, each of these little fiefdoms and the rest of everything else just sort of floated around like flotsam and jetsam in, in the ethernet around WCW. Uh, and I think that probably was the beginning at the end. Yeah, the WCW had died years before the body hit the floor. Uh, you, 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 all the little witticisms that we use, you know, the uh, lunatics running the asylum, and you know, Jim Hurd thinking he's directing something from from Atlanta, and then something different's happening out there. Then the heat's being put back on the talent when they come back to Jim Hurd. No industry, no business. If you run on the hamburger stand, you could run it that way. And, and or, get or, this or, or a pizza or a pizza stand, of course, or or a pizza hut. Yeah. Yes, it's a, uh, which by the way I think is you know, when I was a kid, pizza huts were ubiquitous, and now there's they're fairly few and far between compared to what they used to be. Uh, 
Yeah, I, I think Jim Hurd would actually probably before Kip Fry when he's handing out those huge contracts to everybody. And then you had people like Ole coming back in and then Bill Watts, who had these really old school thoughts about contracts. And uh, I just was talking about Bill Watts and then when it came up, talking about the guarantee contracts. And I remember Bill saying multiple times, uh, guarantee contracts will be the death of this business. And, you know, within a few years, suddenly everybody was stubbing their toe and couldn't rest for six weeks. Uh, you know, and it's and we've seen so much more since then. The problem was each of these guys had their own different philosophies on the business. Uh, Kip Fry was lavishing money out. Then these oldies and Bill Watts came in, and to them, like when they were that age, they weren't making but this much, and so now they're making this much, and they think you should be making that much, like they were back thirty years ago, and it just created this whole atmosphere oxygen in, in wcw uh that uh, just everybody was just waiting to see okay like each time this, the carousel comes back around to this point like who's in charge today okay here it's gonna go around who is it today and the next time it comes around is it who is it now and it was always somebody i mean how many times was vince russo fired and brought back bischoff let go come back then it's bischoff and russo together then it's russo then it's Bischoff. i mean it was this just like crazy uh, just lunatic way of running a company. And you can imagine in a company that's in a business profession that's predicated on creating characters, creating intelligent storylines, and fostering that along, well, they're all playing Peyton Place back at the office. How much time is being put forward to any kind of uh, the nuanceful stuff, the stuff that makes wrestling great? And uh, very little, if any. And, and so that that really, I think, is the epitaph WCW, and it's a shame because as we talk about Halloween Havoc this week, uh, I, we'll get into a lot of the what I think really separated us from WWE at the time. And instead of augmenting those things that we were great at, they were in this point of trying to somehow like one foot here in sports entertainment and one foot old school, and again, just how not to do it. It's well. It's funny you mentioned that one foot in sports entertainment. Uh, this is a couple of things down, but Giant Gonzalez El Gigante debuts around this time as well. Uh, before we get yes. to that, though, I want to mention this because you went to NWA. It was still the NWA at that point before Ted Turner bought it in 1988. At the time, Dave Meltzer, and this is in uh, late 1989, described the continual fall of WCW in the NWA over the past year and said about Dusty Rhodes' final days in charge of creative. So here's the quote. Virtually all the same mistakes over the full quarter of 1988 uh, when Dusty Rhodes nearly totally sabotaged the group and left it for dead are occurring today. What do you think that Dave Meltzer means when he says that Dusty Rhodes was intentionally trying to kill, sabotage the company at the end? Is that the way you remember it in 88? Uh, right at the time it was getting ready to switch over, we didn't know that until like right beforehand, but you could sense that it was different. You know, like uh, anytime I travel over, over, whether it's Canada or Europe or somewhere, as soon as I get off the plane, I can tell it's not America anymore, right? It's all modern, it's all great, but it's just, it doesn't, there's something that's different about it. In those last six, seven, eight months of, of the NWA, excuse me, there was something different. My recollection of Dusty's booking at the time was it had grown tired. Because everything was, at the time, if you go back and watch the tapes, as soon as the action starts picking up, whether it's a tag team match on a hot tag, 
or the baby face starts making a comeback, just when the action starts to pick up, everybody would stand up and go <laughs> and return to the entrance. They knew somebody would be running in mm. and uh, had to get clear about the message there. Um, and, and so at the time, there was a lot of conversation in the dressing rooms about uh, Dusty's hot-shotting it again, right? And at the time, as far as his character went, every time somebody got loosely popular, Dusty would be there with them. Remember, he's out there with the, the uh, 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 road warriors, face-painted, Sting, face, somebody's out there with Sting face-painting, and he's doing, each time he would do that, it, it would seem to us in the dressing room that he was doing that to get himself over alongside of them, but to push himself sort of in front of them. And that was like the criticism of Dusty's booking at that time. Uh, and let's face it, like I've talked about before with uh, Paul Heyman, you know, uh, for anybody that's ever done anything creatively, whether you write poetry or you're a writer or, you know, you write music uh, or you're a wrestler and creating facets to your character and storyline. Nobody has a bottomless well of creativity. Creativity can wane and ebb uh, up and down. But uh, typically, once it dries out, once it's bone dry, it's not if you take six months off, it'll come back here. It just really never comes back fully. And I think at this time with Dusty's booking, uh, it, it was showing that his his well was getting close to the bottom. I don't remember ever hearing the discussion about sabotage. Uh, it just seemed in the dressing room at that time, uh, he was past his time. Like, like he had had some pretty prodigious years and it was time for somebody else. But the question was at that time, who is that somebody else? Who's that next thing? Uh, because it, you know, again, in, in 40 plus years in wrestling, I can probably name three, four, possibly five. If I really dug deep guys that I thought that were fantastic at that creativity um, and you know, demonstrated for an ample amount of time. Uh, they all have their big years, and then either time passes by, the booking no longer makes sense, that style, uh, or uh, for some of them, like one, you know, wrestling when done well always will try to wrap in current events. And, you know, again, we I talk about contemporary lens, and wrestling done well always looks to that contemporary lens. And oftentimes, you said, I think with Bill Watts at the end of his booking, you would see him doing stuff they did in the like 50s, 60s, or early 70s. Problem was it was mid 80s, <laughs> and uh, you know, so I, you know, it's, I, but I don't remember hearing uh, people thinking that Dusty was sabotaging. Well, uh, let me give you some uh, things that uh, Meltzer says in '89 that was wrong in WCW. Some creative, some not. Constant no-shows, which is obviously not a creative issue. Screw job finishes, the same wrestlers being pushed, which even back in the day was, I'm sure, you know, as a tale as old as time. Uh, yep. Terribly syn uh, Terrible syndicated shows. So apparently, apart from the main one, the syndicated shows were not very good. Poor house show promotion. Gimmicks. This is the ding-dong here, of course. And matches changing with no explanation, which we will actually talk about in part two of Halloween Havoc 89 that we're going to be discussing later. Now, some more news. Brian Pillman had recently been stabbed four times by a home invader. I had no I had no idea about this. True. Is it true? Yes. Well, that's the story that we heard at the time, that there had been an intruder, and uh, uh, that was around the time that Brian then started getting guns and things in the house, which would then come into play later when he'd broken his ankle in WWF, and they did the play on the gun stuff. Uh 
Uh, yeah. I, if you'd asked me that just cold, I wouldn't have known. But when you said it, I was like, oh, yeah, I do remember your that. Yeah. Uh, but because Brian, like me, Zank Pillman, and, and Johnny Ace, we would typically travel together. Uh, I, I, as I recollect, I remember, because, uh, you know, we're all, what the hell happened? Oh, it's crazy. And he said, well, I can't talk about it. I can't talk about it. Like there was a case pending or something. Uh, you know, and looking back, uh, you know, now that I'm sitting here thinking about it, I wonder, because Brian was always pushing that loose cannon thing that, you know, quite couldn't nail down. Is he being legit? Is it not legit? Uh, but I remember always hearing that, that that had happened and that that's why he was like suddenly became like Mr. Gun owner and all of that. Next up, uh, we'll probably skip past quite a few of these so we can get to the show itself. And, you know, if there's any space at the end, we'll uh, lob them back yeah. in. Uh, George, or Jorge, excuse me, Giant Gonzalez, after several months of working on house shows, debuts on television as El Gigante, tagging with, of all people, the Junkyard Dog. Now, next up, Shane Douglas recently gets his arm out of a sling after Sid Vicious managed to injure both him and Johnny Ace in the same match. Sid was said, in fact, do I even need to say what happened? No, I mean, you can. I, I remember. Oh, okay. happened, yeah. it was, it was, apparently, Sid was said to have punched Johnny hard in the face and dropped Shane wrong on a slam. Take us back well, to what happened. Yeah, it, it wasn't a slam. Uh, we were in Troy, New York, which was a huge heel town, right? And as we'll talk about how we have <laughs> dynamic dudes were just a little bit less than well liked. Um, we uh, went out on the pay-per-view. Uh, Corny was out there with us. And they would typically, regardless of who we were working with, would typically want me to stay in the ring the longest, the most. You know, I was getting tiresome. I was in there. So we decided to get the heat on me. And the crowd starts chanting, Sid, Sid, Sid. <clears throat> and I remember this was like glaze going over his eyes, like mesmerized by it. And he grabbed me and he throws me out to the floor. But as he throws me out to the floor, I, as I hit and I go to sit up, like his feet are already on the floor. Now, at this time, we weren't, they didn't allow us, we were allowed ringside. But they fretted on that. They wanted the action in the ring. And now we're both out there. And he reaches down and grabs me, but hard, like yanks my hair and tells me, I'm throwing you out. Well, we're already on the floor. And I said, we are out. And he starts throwing me towards the railing. I'm going, no, 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 no. Because we were, we were forbidden to go over that rail. And uh, he was so big and strong as he's throwing me. Like, he, like, like in one swoop, like picks me up over his head and throws me straight up in the air. Well, the railing is right below me, and I'm kicking, trying to clear myself either one side or the other. And last second, I pulled my elbow, my arms in like to brace myself, and I was my body was sort of turned cockeyed, and I landed right on my elbow on the railing. And he grabs me again. I mean, I just no sooner take this fall, and he grabs me again. Cornet came around and hit him with the racket. And uh, and I kicked him like in the leg or something, and I knew my arm was hurt. I didn't know it was broken yet, but I knew it was hurt. And I told Court, I think my arm's broke. And, and of course, oh Jesus Christ! And he starts yelling stuff at the ref, at the ref, and everything. We finished that match, and then the next night, I, my, I know my arm's broken. I'm going to X-ray that night, so I'm out. And 
instead of putting Danny Spivey out there with, with Johnny, could have had a halfway decent match. They put Sid out there with Johnny Ace. Well, there's a, a phrase in wrestling, the curtain sellout, right? Everybody <laughs> somebody's on the curtain watching. And he throws it, Sid, Sid, the glaze. He throws Johnny in, hits him with a clothesline, but literally hits him like right here. And you see the big puff of red and Johnny goes down. You know, his, either his teeth are knocked out or his nose is broken, something. So they bring Johnny back and finish the match early, obviously. They come back. We're in Buffalo, New York on this one. And uh, uh, Flair's the booker. He's at the building, right? So he's uh, he comes over. They put Johnny on the, on his desk. They clear his desk off. And Johnny's like, oh, son. Bitch. He's like, you're over. So on his you know, broken nose. And uh, he goes, Johnny, Johnny, calm down. Calm down. Let me take a look at it. So Johnny starts when he pulls his hands away and work with this. Ah, it's broken. Johnny, no, oh, Jesus Christ. And Flair goes, Johnny, it's just a broken nose. He goes, Johnny, oh, sir. But my face is my gimmick. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole dressing room just goes, ah. just starts cracking up. We get Johnny, me, Tom Zane, take him to the ho to the hospital. It was dead. It was Saturday night, I believe. It was weekend and dead. There was nobody in there. The dog had like uh rock and roll real loud in the in the in the room. He comes in, he's okay, yeah, yeah. And he tells me and Zank, you know, he gets he's turned around doing something, he goes, looks at us. I hold him down, like quietly, right? Oh, so God. he comes over to Johnny. And so we start holding him down. He turns around, he's got this long-ass needle. <laughs> I don't like needles. I'm going like, <laughs> He takes it, he shoves it up Johnny's nose. And Johnny starts like like pushing and flailing and screaming. And uh, it didn't look like fun, uh, but he numbed it up after that and was able to set it and everything. But two days, dynamic dudes wiped out. Uh, I, it's, I, I want to think I was... I've never worn a cast like I'm supposed to. I can't. I get claustrophobic. But they were talking in this Halloween habit. We're talking about the, the brace that was on my arm. I hadn't realized in watching it that was post injury. Uh, uh, but yeah. So yeah, two, two, two days, the, uh, the Twin Towers decimated the dynamic <laughs> dudes. Must have been the light of the Buffalo crowd and the Troy crowd. It was. <laughs> Man, what was it with Sid? Was he just like. Just mesmerized by being popular for the first time in his yes. in his life. Yeah, he, so he just like got energized like Popeye and spinach and just had to do something. Yes, <laughs> yes, very yes. much. And you know, big powerful guy like him, big strong guy like him, could and was dangerous in the ring. Uh, he, but he always even like back in Continental before that, you know, he just damn near a seven foot guy, huge, powerful. And uh, they had him on the humongous gimmick there. Well, he wanted to do like hip ups and head scissors, and I'm like, dude, like, no, like, leave that stuff for me. You're the you're like the big cousin, right, cousin Hugo. And uh, uh, there, there's the and if I've told the story, you stop me. Where he wanted Sika, who was in Continental with times Sika and uh, Alan Alan Jackson. Uh, the gimmick for Alan Jackson was that he had inherited this money and bought Sika's contract. Dressing rooms are kayfabe at this time, right? So he keeps telling me, I went to this spot where I, you know, do a flying headsets on Sika. So I said, please don't call that spot with Sika. Like, just, just listen to Sika, right? <laughs> Easy. So he gets Sika back. He, now he had the hockey mask on. So he got Sika back in the corner, and I can see the mask going up and down. He's calling something a million miles an hour. I'm going, oh, shit, he's going to do it. He's going to do it. So he goes over, and he leaves Sika in the corner, 
and he walks over to Alan Jackson, or uh, uh, yeah, Jackson had skindle arms like this, right? So he climbs up the top rope and he drops off and he gives this really like weak little punch. And Sid goes, mm, and the whole building went quiet. They thought he had a heart attack or something. <laughs> Here he had called the Sika. Sika was supposed to come up behind him and get down like a schoolboy. <laughs> like Sika's gonna do that, right? The, the wild Samoan. And uh he Sika did. As I remembered, Sika started walking over toward him and he like Yui'd off and went over to the neutral corner and crossed his legs and into the corner watching. And uh we get back to the dressing room and I the shit was matter in hell. And I said, Would you learn anything, Sid? And it's, I told you just listen to Sika. And uh, but he was always wanted to do more stuff like that. And uh, you know, you would try to you were blue in the face to, to explain it. Uh you know, what kind of a character he is and what, you know, what that means. Uh, and and he, he just never, he, I think, and he was an incredible athlete for as big as he was. Uh, but at, especially at that time, again, we're looking through the current lens, right? It put ourselves back in 89. Big guys didn't do that. You know, and it, was, it wasn't, and he couldn't do it. Like if you were imagine on a big guy or whatever, but just to typically throw it in, throw it, show you can do it. I think a lot of fans would go like, they all sit on head scissors for, you know, it just would have looked awkward and, and weird and, and ill-timed. And, and anyway, we'll move on. <laughs> do, you, do you know what? I mean, I think you're going to be hard-pressed to come up with a better story than that. I really enjoy <laughs> that as well. I, I love a Sid story, but they were two corkers then. Right, let's move on. A recent WCW memo goes out demanding toned-down violence and no blood on television. Now, keep in mind, this is all November 89, around this time. Although pay-per-view uh, and then uh, house shows were not really... Uh, just on TV only, essentially. Pay-per-view had added dispensation. And there was no such uh, restrictions. Uh, the plastic bag spot with Terry Funk, strangling Ric Flair, and Scott Steiner's on-camera street-mugging segments seem to be the catalyst for this. We're gonna, uh, we'll are gonna, we probably talk about that another day. We've got so much to get through. I'm sorry, everybody. Yeah. Uh, next is Ricky Steamboat sues WCW slash NWA over promoting him and using his image for shows as far as in advance as October, despite leaving the promotion in July. A former mental patient slashed 46-year-old Antonio... Oh, I'm sorry, this is on other news now. Uh, slashed Antonio Inoki in the face while he was giving a speech at a concert following his recent foray into politics. He received emergency medical treatment and returned to the concert to assure people he was okay. More news elsewhere from WCW. Bam Bam Bigelow is making a venture into boxing. I hadn't realised that he was interested in, let's just call it shoot fighting, so early on. But did you always know Bam was uh, all about it? I, I, he did an MMA fight years later, you know, when he couldn't really do it. But yeah. I mean, uh, a, a proper tough guy then back in the day. Yeah, oh yeah, definitely a tough guy. No, Bammer had never spoken about any uh, interest in outside things like that, you know, other than acting, like when he'd done the Trident. Uh, bubble gum commercial or, or chewing gum commercial. Excuse me. He uh, he seemed so to me anyway, completely focused on the business. You know, and he, he I think he made his name in bones. He was well known before this, but when he had this WrestleMania match against LT Lawrence Taylor, uh, that was what like put him on that like a tier. Like you know, he had that good of a match with a guy that's not a wrestler and. Uh, you know, in our travels and discussions, I never heard him talking about tough men contests, which is what a lot of that stuff was called back then. Uh, 
boxing, anything other than the acting. He would talk about the acting mostly because of the health insurance. You know, I think he said it was like 50 bucks a month at the time for, for his family. And, uh, you know, and, and like, as we were together more after that, uh, you know, from the triple threat on, he would often talk about what he was going to do after the business, after being in the ring. And I think at that time is when he started opening up more about the acting, getting involved. I think he had, there was a couple bit parts that he had and, and he enjoyed that and, and was good at it. You know, he had, I was watching an old episode of Macmillan and Wife, which you've probably never heard of, uh, on one of my Roku channels. And they had, I don't know the guy's name, but this guy was the guy that they, every TV show back in the 70s had on like as a cameo as like the heavy bad guy. It was like one of those faces. You know, and Bammers, you remember, had that push, right? Like he could grow his hair out and hide the tattoos and everything or wear a wig or whatever. Uh, but he had that kisser, that scowl that he could really, you know, play out. And because of the size and everything, and now notoriety from wrestling. That was the only thing I ever heard Bammer talk about after the ring was being involved in acting. I'd never, never had voiced any opinion about fighting or boxing or any of that. Next up, Akira Maeda is in the States trying to put together a fight with boxing heavyweight champion of the world, Mike Tyson. A new wrestler makes his way to Memphis, a huge rookie called the Soul Taker, who is... Do you know in it? No? Soul Taker? No, no, no. Uh, I do. Oh, God. He tagged, he tagged with the Undertaker in Memphis when he was very young. No, no, no. No? No. Did, did someone shout Wait. it out back there, or...? No, there's nobody here. Oh, I sorry. Here. I thought someone would shout to the Godfather. He was the Sultan. Oh, yeah, 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 of there course. Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about Godfather another time. Uh, Liam Maivia, Lars Anderson, and Atia, uh, Ati Soho are, uh, are, are in um, court, accused of extortion of a wannabe promoter in Hawaii, uh, we'll <laughs> move, which uh, they were found all not guilty somehow. They were uh, accused of some like wannabe, like a B level promoter wanting to promote in Hawaii, and they demanded a $5,000 tribute. Kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, FM de- FMW debuts led by its founder, Atushi, excuse me, Atsushi Onita. Joey Morella ends up in a serious car wreck in 89. Sadly, it unfortunately wouldn't yeah. be his last. Yeah. Uh, Barry Windham, who recently re debuted for the WWF, buggers off again without giving notice and is fired. It's suggested at the time that he had a benign tumour removed. But Barry, I'm pretty sure, told me that he just got sick of it and left. So uh, God knows what, what happened there. Barry, Barry would do that quite often. He would he would pop in. There was another time that he, I want to say in WCW, didn't show up somewhere. Said he needed twenty five thousand dollars, needed surgery on his hand, I think, and never showed up after that. Uh, Barry, uh, you know, I love Barry, and boy, what an incredible worker. Uh, I think that he had having grown when I interviewed him myself. Uh, Having grown up around the business, I think that like, there was always so many lies being told and stories and things. There was always just like the, the, the facade of wrestling. And I think just for my two cents worth, we had spoken specifically about this, but that he had just grown tired of that because he'd been around it his entire life. And like he would just get to a point where like he might be on his Harley drive into a show and go, eh, eh, zip off and wouldn't see him for six months someplace. Uh, but yeah, he was, he, he, at that time had gotten quite a reputation for that. And at one point, uh, I remember like the talk being in the business, like nobody would use him 
because of that. Like, you know, Barry would always get his foot back in the door because he was so damn good. I'm trying to think how many times he did it. Uh, I, I don't know if he revealed when I interviewed him that when he was doing the US Express thing with Mike Rotunda, if I'm correct in saying that, yeah. he did the same thing there. He just went, I don't know if it was just like the, the, the road got the best of me. I had to go. See you later. And then he did it with yeah. the Widowmaker. He's, he, there's, there's like a bit of a respect for him like that because he's not going to be sort of like beholden to any promoter. It's like, no, dude, when when the pressure gets, I'm, I'm done. I'm not going to kill myself yeah. for, uh, you know, anyone's sake. So. Yeah, that was that's always been my take on it. And I, and I think the boys sort of had a kind of respect for it. You know, like, hey, because you know, we'd all looked at the times and go, hey, fuck you guys and, <laughs> and be off and done and walk off. And none of us were in a position to. So like you see something like Barry that you respected, do it. It, it always seemed like in some ways leveling that playing field just a hair, you know. Strike one for the good guys. Yeah. <laughs> and the very last bit of news is Coco Beware is fired from the WWF after thoroughly kicking the ass of WWF exec Jim Troy after Troy makes various racially charged statements, allegedly, toward Coco in Brussels, Belgium. The Rockers were also fired and then rehired the next day, although for a completely different reason. Coco Beware would be rehired about six weeks later. So, onto the pay-per-view itself. How far did you get into it as we record today? Did you watch the whole thing or just the first half? Yeah, yeah watched to the end. Oh, you watched to the end? Okay, yeah. then, right. We've well. forward past, like, different parts and stuff, but... Uh... Yeah, we we got the gist of it. Yeah, I, uh, I I gave uh, some advice for a couple of matches to skip, but uh, I'm going to read some preamble here of the pay per view itself. WCW Halloween Havoc 1989, settling the score. October 28th, Civic Center in Philadelphia, PA, 7,300 in attendance, and quite an impressive buy rate of 1.7, indicating around 150,000 buys. The debut for the new pay per view concept headlined. By the Thunderdome. What is the Thunderdome? You'll find out in part two because I didn't quite know what to expect of this. And quite frankly, after all the nonsense they were talking about, an electrified cage, nobody expected like to them to all just forget about it, essentially. Yeah. Now, <laughs> so Elvira had been booked to produce some very good promos to advertise Halloween Havoc in the run up to it. Uh, watching this, I know you watched it on the WWE Network. I hope you liked uh, library music overdubbing because there was quite a lot of it on this one. And then Jim Ross and Bob Cordell, well, I know, I'm sure you've got a lot of love for Bob Cordell, everyone does, thrown to Gordon Soley in the back, who's, I've got to say, uh, Gordon Soley's voice when he was doing interviews in the back, it seemed a bit weaker than I'm used to. Uh, is that just to my ear or was he uh, faltering vocally at this point? Yeah, he, he was certainly a little bit older then, uh, you know, and, and I think. Uh, you know, it was showing. I mean, he was not a young guy at that time, and uh, but you know, just one of those guys. You know, at least for me, having grown up watching him, you know, like to be in in the same room or going to an interview with him or whatever, it was like really sort of cool. And uh, I, I think more at the time as I'm looking back at it, it was like, okay, his voice is weak, but maybe he's got a cold or whatever. You're not not thinking of it like now. You, you see the spans of time. Uh, because he was one of those guys that, for us, us kids in the dressing room, was like one of the heavyweights. You know, he, he's like one of the guys. And uh, and just always, Gord was always just cool to be around. You know, all those all those announcers were, you know, they, they uh, Lance Russell, uh, Bob Cottle, all those guys, they, they, it wasn't like I see today where the announcers are off over here and they're giving scripts or points to say or whatever. 
they would float around with the guys and shoot the shit with the guys and, you know, uh, you know, ask questions and different things. It, it was a lot more uh, homogenous in, in the way that they uh, approached their job as announcers. And because of who they were, all of them, you know, it was just sort of like a little bit cool to us, you know, that we're, we're actually standing and working with these guys. Uh, but they, uh, yeah, but he was by that end, he, you know, by that time frame, like nearing the end of his career, his voice was sort of winning, which is, I think, why they kept him off the play by play. You know, it's a lot more demanding and figured that putting him out there and that kind of a thing, he still carried that gravitas. He, everybody still knew who he was. And now it's sort of just like, you know, giving him his, his platform in the, in the back, a little bit easier path for him. Uh, it's always an unfair question to ask it, but just, just play by play, forget the color. Forget teams, just as a play-by-play announcer, where does Gordon Soley rank on that list, the greatest? Certainly top three, five, maybe. Uh, you know, he he was for so many years. Once WTBS, once cable television came in, early, mid-80s, like in that 83, 4, 5, 6, in that range, uh, suddenly we're able to watch the NWA program, Georgia Championship Wrestling programs. And you know, up to then, it was always, he was a picture in a magazine for me. And suddenly you hear him talking. And to this day, the, uh, the old timers in the dressing room talk about a vertical souffle. Mm. You know, it's not a souffle, it's a souffle. I think it's I think something you eat. But uh, just the little witticisms and quips and things that he would have uh, that made Gordon solely Gordon solely. For me, it's, it's, you know, obviously, uh, I'm sure somebody like Chris would probably say Jim Ross, right? Because when, when he was of age and, you know, you know, coming into wrestling as a fan, for me, it was uh, Bill Cardell in Pittsburgh and then, you know, Gordon Soley later. Uh, and and certainly Jim Ross played in there. Uh, my top play-by-play guy ever, probably done a lot of other people's, uh, Joey Styles. I, I thought Joey was extraordinary at it because he did it without a play-by-play guy, I mean, without a color guy. And did it much, and I don't think he even knew what he, that he was doing it that way, but was doing it much the way that Bob Coddle and Lance Russell and Gordon Soley and those guys would, because he would come in and talk. I remember he and Taz talking about uh, uh, the, the Taz mission, the, 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 uh, and they came up with the name Kadahaja Maid. And, uh, you know, so like, Joey was very reminiscent to me as the star in that company of these luminaries of previous generations uh and, and you know and, and again because of what it was uh, the presentation of ecw is so different at that time to what fans had seen from wrestling prior this was a completely different painting this had not been seen and so that joey was so adept at that and, and I, again i don't know if he was knowingly uh invoking the the Solis and and the Coddles and the Russells and all of those guys but he, he very much felt like that in the way that he approached it to me anyway now Chris Cruz is also in the back I didn't write this down but I think that may have been his uh, on-screen debut or at least pay-per-view debut but uh, someone correct me if it wasn't and then he introduces the mo- uh, world's most dangerous ring announcer David Michael Capetta who announces the first match Tom Zenk versus Captain Mike Rotunda, uh, Nick Patrick refereeing. Now, did you watch it? Uh, we watched uh, pieces that we watched probably from the uh, uh, the comeback, fully from the comeback yeah. on. Uh, there, the, the two things that popped out at me, well, three things. 
One was you could see already how the audience was being conditioned, right? Rotunda and Tom both were working hard. Neither was being lazy. Everything was semantically sound. But the crowd is very flat. You'd hear the applause here and there, chance maybe a little bit here and there. But you could see, like, well, this ain't Flair, or it ain't the Four Horsemen, or it ain't Dusty. Uh, the audience beginning to get that conditioning and waiting. The other thing that stuck out to me was, and I never, if you'd have bet me prior to watching, I probably would have lost the bet. I don't ever remember Mike Rotunda doing a blind cross body block <laughs> ever. And, and he did it pretty well, you know? So, and then the final thing that, that popped out to me uh, was as they roll through, it's the, uh, he does the cross body block, the blind cross body, and they roll through Zanko on top. If you watch the cover, initially on the one count, uh, Tom is is on the one shoulder and reaching over. But as the two count comes down, he reaches over and covers up the rest of his chest as Rotunda is also pulling him down. So there, so now he's, he's fully covered for a pin. Uh, a tiny detail that most people would never catch. But it's those like tiny little things like that, the nuanceful stuff I talk about, that to me somehow just made that just a little bit more because, you know, well, it's, it's just wrestling. So it's a cover. Everyone knows it's finished. Referee knows the count. Yeah, but it doesn't look right. It, it, the, the, the visual of it isn't correct. Uh, and, and then one final point. I, I said, I, I know it's the last one will be on me. One more point. Uh, in watching this match, it struck me the question as to why Tom Zank never did make it because he had everything. Uh, he was damn solid in the ring, certainly had the look, right? Uh, uh, everything was there. All the pieces of the puzzle were there other than, like, and, you know, Chris made a comment about, like, I didn't sleep with the right people or something. Uh, you know, he was he was pretty prodigious on the road and had his, had his fun on the road. But, you know, again, this is prior to this period, and maybe I'm just naive, Prior to like us coming into the business, it seemed to me that if you were a great worker and you were drawing reaction and getting crowd to come to that building, sooner or later you're going to get pushed. And uh, you know, we the, the saying in dressing used to always be, "It's about putting asses in the seats, right?" If you're doing that, and Zank had every tool to do that, then what what was it that kept him from excelling into those top spots? You know, a, a lot of time it's timing, luck. Uh, but you know, Tom, it wasn't like Tom was in and out. Like Tom was there for a fairly significant period of time, and yet somehow, looking back, you look at that guy on the screen and think, "What was he lacking? What was he missing?" And by by my calculus, I could see nothing. I, I could identify nothing as to why he didn't get that push. Mike Rotunda. I'm I'm just going to say this as a fan watching of all different iterations of Mike Rotunda. I was I've got to say I was never a fan. I I I know he's a bad guy and all that kind of thing, but I, there's something about him that I can never gravitate to. I can never connect with as a performer. I mean, he's got the size. He's obviously got the pedigree. A very good amateur wrestler, very well regarded into the business. But uh, why do you think that was as a fan to me? Was it like a charisma thing that was struggling because he never seemed to like break out. Uh, you know, into the upper echelons like Tom Zenk didn't either, despite the fact that right. he had a lot of things going for him. 
yeah, again, all those tools were there. I think food, and again, this is just you know my two cents worth on it. Uh, he never excelled at the promos, and as a heel, that's like one of those cards you have to have in your deck as a heel. Uh, it's certainly in that time frame because you had the flares and guys like that before you, the horsemen. So that that was one quiver that he didn't have in his, you know, or one arrow he didn't have in his quiver. Uh, but he was always semantically sound. I remember when he was uh, teaming with uh, Steve Williams and Johnny would get in there and, you know, we'd wrestle him around the loop and everything. And Johnny would occasionally, you know, do something where, like, he would take Steve down, and Steve, of course, is working with him, so he'd do it. But then he would helicopter on him and jump up and come want to tag me. And I was like, my arm would go, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> so yeah, you're not going to piss the big guy, the bull, off like that and put me in there to take the brunt of it. Uh, that that was the thing that, to me was the one piece that that Mike was missing. I think Mike would tell you he he didn't like doing promos, wasn't good at it, was sort of shied away from it. He had that pedigree. My guess, and pure guess, would be that guys like that that had that pedigree coming into pro wrestling at that time and prior, which would have been in the time he's coming up and watching wrestling and everything, uh, that he would have assumed that, that pedigree alone would have been enough to carry him over, like it had been in previous generations. Unfortunately for Mike, we were coming into this period that none of us could have imagined, where wrestling was going to go to the stratosphere, right, and everything televised the number of people watching on a weekly basis, everything's exploded to places that nobody before us could ever, ever imagined. And suddenly the game had switched. There was a, there was new things. There were new things that were needed like promos uh, and the telegenesis, right? The, we're on TV. This is a TV product. And a lot of those guys, Steamboat was hated doing promos. Uh, uh, but, Steamer knew where those cameras were. And I think Mike would just do his wrestling just around and about, never really focusing, at least in those years when he's first transitioning into heel, uh, uh, finding those. I, I, a lot of those guys at that time had that feeling that the camera should find us. You know, we have all these cameras around here, so if we're wrestling this way or this way, the camera should get around there to pick it up. And a lot of times in you know television, especially in a TV match, depending on the time you're given, you've got to play to those cameras because, you know, th this spot might be so fast. By the time Jackie can run around the ring to get that shot, you're three moves ahead. And that would be my guess again on those things because as I was, I was like me with Mike, he just never had that over-the-top heel charisma, like, oh, shit, it's Mike Rotunda. Everybody respected his work. Mike was a great, is a great guy. Uh, but I think that, again, the, 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 the you know, how the, everything changes – the business that he had watched prior and then had this great amateur background at Syracuse now comes into wrestling expecting to apply what he had seen as a kid and suddenly the game had changed. Mm -hmm. uh, but that would be my guess too is, is the, the life of promos and, and the, the telegenesis of our product. Uh, Tom Zank gets a quick pin on Mike by reversing a second rope crossbody after getting beaten up uh, the majority of the bouts. Now, we go to Chris Cruz. He interviews main event guest referee Bruno Sammartino. We will save Bruno for next week because we've got a load of Bruno questions, but we'll sort of like lump them all together for next uh, next week, next time we do this anyway. And then the next match is a six-man tag, Midnight Express and Dr. Death Steve Williams with Jim Cornette versus 
the Samoan SWAT team, Fatu and Samu and Samoan Savage, best known as Tama or Tonga Kid, with the big kahuna, uh, Oliver Humperdinck, which uh, <laughs> he looked just like Lou Albano when he came out there as well, man, yeah. I tell you. <coughs> so uh, we could go any different number of directions with all these six guys in here. About the match first, what did you think of it? I mean, it seemed like a lot of fun, and I'll tell you what, Dr. Death Steve Williams, I've not watched him in a while. I forgot what a ball of energy he was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that was the, the first thing that jumped out at me was, you know, and, and Moose was commenting on, uh, you know, he, it, it, Steve, you know, most big guys have that girth and everything, and because Steve didn't have that, and when he's in the ring, he's in, in the ring with guys that are relatively the same size. It's it's hard to to notice on on a TV screen just how big and thick he was. I mean, he was just a thick human being and tough. Like you just see, like, watch his legs, the ripples in his legs as he's moving or running around. You know, four time All American wrestler, four time All American football player. That's a rarity in college sports, especially today. Uh, he at some points because he had that energy, like so, and he brought that from his from his football career. Uh, which again, Bill Watts loved, and Jim Ross. If you remember the, the commentary, was you know, always football, football, football. Uh, there were times that I think Steve would have been better served to try to pull that energy back a hair, let stuff breathe. Um, but you know, just again, just seeing him—he was like one of those guys larger than life as the, as the kid that I was in the dressing room. So when I, I get to watch something like that and seeing him alive and so robust and so. Steve Williams, uh, it, it's sad to think of him gone, you know, because there was just, just there was a human being there. There was this guy that was, you know, a lot deeper than people would expect. To, and and uh, but what a physical specimen he was. Uh, and the Samoans, I mean, every time I talk about the Samoans, I say this. In that family, it's in the genes. They all are great wrestlers. They know where to move, how to move around, how to get you over, do all of these things. It's just so second nature to all of them. Uh, th that was my take on, the, on that on that match in general. What I didn't like about the match oh, is uh, I quite liked the match. I didn't know you'd have a criticism. Oh, I, no, I liked I, I liked it, but Midnight Express did not seem like Midnight Express to me. Mm. You know, it was like the the, the baby face turn. You know, them getting outsmarted instead of them being the ones being you know doing the outsmarting. Uh, for me, I always thought when suddenly when <clears throat> some vicious heel turns babyface, all of a sudden he's weak and he's getting beat up. And what happened to that guy? Like you bring those facets over, and you know, for the for the, a lot of people that have made those transitions back and forth, uh, the the best of them. Like if you watch Flair, and I, you know, well, I don't like to put him over. He deserves it. He was he, he's such a great worker. Uh, whether he was babyface or heel, he was flair, right? He wasn't suddenly doing something different uh, than he was doing, whether he was on the other side of the fence or not. <clears throat> and that's smart. Uh, for me, that was the part in watching it. Like, is there, like, doing this babyface thing? I see Stan looks almost out of place. And, like, you know, Bobby, I thought, did a great job selling, <clears throat> but it was so not Midnight Express to me. It had been years since I'd seen them in that babyface role because his face, I mean, as, as a, as a heel tag team, yeah, they're part enchiladas, right? I mean, they, they were like pretty much the cream of the cream and like suddenly now they're baby faces. So they're somehow not as 
smart or quick or shady or shifty or whatever you whatever euphemism you want to throw to them. But no, I thought it was a good match, especially for a six man tag and six people being such different styles. Uh, we'll uh, we'll leave the um, we'll leave the Samoan side. I want to pick up a couple of things that you said with uh, Midnight Express, especially. Actually, do you think they were uncomfortable in their in their new role? Because I, I can see you nodding, but I'll, I'll I'll follow this up with this: is that Stan Lane, and this is Stan Lane we're talking about, messes up two things at the end. I think he like uh, he he almost goes for like a super kick, and then he second guesses himself. And yeah. then, as I've written, I can't remember what the finish is, and it says, and then. Dan did it, it gets knocked into Jim Cornette, who's on the apron and gets pinned. There was something else after the kick as well where it didn't seem neck fluid. Breaker. The neck breaker, yes. And yeah. I was just like, man, that's I don't remember ever seeing that from a Midnight Express match. Do you think it was just like their unfamiliarity in that role they were in? Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously in that in that setup, right? You got the Samoans, big, tough guys that can fly around. Being in that face role, you're gonna have to be in a cell position at some point. To get this match over, you can't get to a hot tag. You can't get to a comeback without that in a six man. Uh, I thought the same thing the first time I saw him mess the uh, the, the swing and neck breaker. I was like, "Ooh, it's something you don't normally see them doing." Like you said with the super kick thing, uh, it, it just it, it seemed awkward, you know. And, and uh, I'm sure that's that's got to be it. I mean, at this point, they had been prodigious heels, the top of that heel tag team division for how many years? And suddenly they're they're doing things that that, that they wouldn't otherwise do. Uh, but yeah, that was might without question that would come into play because again you're thinking as a babyface now and, instead of as a as a heel. And, and to me, what always made the Midnight Express so phenomenal as heels, aside from from you know Bobby's work rate and their tag, the chemistry between them uh, and Corny, of course, was the fact that. No matter how hard you tried, they were always like willing to do one more thing to get you. You know, there was just that little part that I thought was missing in that babyface role. We, I'm going to go back to Doctor Death, and then we'll move on. Doctor Death, did you ever wrestle him in UWF or or WCW? How was he? Yeah, WCW. He was one of those guys. You know, he would definitely work with you because he could go in there and pulverize if he wanted to. Uh, he was one of those guys, much like Haku. Uh, like if you get him an arm bar or a headlock or something, you could tell just by the feel of his body that he could just tr- flick you off if he wanted to, you know, or or just pick you up and squeeze you to death. Uh, he, Steve, I never saw Steve go to the ring and half-ass it. You know, he was always that, like really going, going, going. And, and again, I think at times because of the style of character that he was and because of the, the 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 heft and the, and the thickness that there were times that if he would have slowed it down and clamped on say like a bear hug or something uh, that a it would have given him a lot more longevity in the ring uh, and I think it would have been done a lot more to sell that particular point but remember where he came from in, in UWF you know Bill Watts was always and Jim Ross were always pushing that football thing football 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 and so I think he thought the guy that won you know, those national championships and stuff had to be that guy. And, uh, you know, it's it's a shame because I think if Steve had been under the right auspice, and I'm not suggesting that Bill wasn't the right thing or, or later Dusty, but if he'd had the right teachers at the right time to teach him those things, you know, where as a big guy, you don't have to be going 900 miles an hour the whole time. That's for smaller guys like us. Uh, 
but j- just to let that settle in. And there was another point, another match, and we'll get to that in a second, uh, or, or or next week's episode, where the uh, the, the Road Warriors are facing off with, with the towers, right between the uh, uh, Spivey and, and 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 Sid, where. At the very end of the match, after this thing starts to break down, there's that face-off between Animal and Sid for about a half a second, and then they start going at it. I looked at Chris, I went, oh, my God. If they had held that for five, six, seven seconds, you'd have felt the building go. It would have been like the volcano rising. You know, just let that, just let it breathe for just a second. Uh, and neither of them were at that level, you know. So it's just those little things that you pick out and, you know, can cherry pick, but yeah, it's uh, uh, Steve Williams was, and I think later there was this smir- like black mark on his career because of what happened with, with Billy Gunn and the Tough Guy contest, right? Bart. Well, first Bark of all, him. or Bart rather, Bart rather. Yeah, first of all, Bart, Bart's a big tough guy, right? Uh, but Steve, yeah, I mean, let's face it, you had a couple of tough guys in there. It's gonna be whoever gets that lucky shot in some place. Uh, and I thought that was sort of unfair to Steve that like suddenly this all like all this like uh, shine that had been on him like suddenly just like washed away because of that one incident. Uh, Steve was a good guy, intense. I saw him one time at a bar called the Windmill in Columbus, Ohio. Me, him, Barry. Uh, uh, Brad Armstrong, we drove out to this place. As I recall, it was at the end of a long straight road off of 70. And it was like miles out in the middle of no place. And we go in, the place is packed. And of course, as we go in, you know, people start recognizing, not me, I was just a kid, but they recognize Barry. And of course, they recognize Steve and Brad. These two big guys come up. Turns out later they were uh, football players for Ohio State Buckeyes. And we're, there was like a, a, the bar, uh, Steve is at the bar getting drinks, and they come up and start talking to him. And me and Barry and Brad are, I don't know, eight, 10 feet away. And you hear these two guys over the music, it was really loud. And they go, oh, Steve Williams, eight time All American, blah, 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 blah. You know, and Steve's like, you know, nodding along with him. And one of them says to him something like, uh, so like, just one question, like, why'd you go to that fake shit? And Steve's demeanor, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> there came the snorting, you know, bull out, you know, the Toro. And uh, uh, the one walked away like he was going to the bathroom or something. But like from where we're standing, it's like we're watching the panorama. So Steve's now talking to the one guy and the other guy who I guess acted like he was going to the bathroom or something, walked about 10, 15 feet away. And he's going like sizing Steve up. You know, I went to step forward to say something to Steve, and Barry goes, no, just watch. And this kid takes a run and hammers Steve. Almost knocked him down. Like, he dropped his beer and took out back steps, and then, and out came that snort. And I mean, when I tell you he beat the hell out of these two guys, it would be like, like Andre beating the hell out of two kids. I mean, he manhandled these two. And, uh... Bartender told us, like, told me, go get the car. Uh, Barry told me, go get the car. And as I was leaving, Brad came running up behind me and said, Barry said, pull the car up behind the uh, bar. So the, the bartender had told them to go out, that the cops had been called. So they told us, to, like, he, he told them, we later told us, I'm driving. 
said, like, pulled the, the headlights off, pulled to the back corner of the building, and we can see all these cop cars flying down the road, sirens going, right? As they pull in, we pulled out and drove away, <laughs> and that was the end of it. But yeah, Steve is a legit tough guy. Yeah. There you go. Uh, it's funny because I was actually talking to Bradshaw not too long ago, who was also in the Brawl for All, and he was talking about Bart Gunn as well, and he just said, he was a tough dude. Uh, I also I also said, like, Jack Dome was the referee, and I said, can you believe that the referee, who's not really a referee, for boxing yeah. especially, would just send you back out there when you could tell that you weren't all home? And Bradshaw said, oh, I told him in the back, if I was standing, send me back out. So I was like, do you know what? In fairness to you, you were going to lose, but at least you were going to go out on your shield. But yeah, that brawl for all did no one any favours, it turned out, in the yeah. end. Um, well, the thing with Bart and Billy both, you know, you see them as a tag team, right? Before I ever met them, I'm thinking, okay, they're like Marty and Sean size. Like, you know, you know big guys, but, you know, you meet them. I mean, they're huge. I mean, they're both big, big men, like monster guys, you know, like huge guys. Uh, you know, so, yeah, bo- you know, both those guys, I'm sure – you know, could handle themselves in Bart, you know, that, that after that, but it was well known before that, you know, basically mm-hmm. here, oh, Bart's a tough guy, but Bart's okay. Take care of himself. So, yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear Bradshaw concurred on that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a couple of quick things. And we're going to get to the main event of this podcast, which you know what it is. Let me tell you, Gordon Soli interviews, Gary Hart and Terry Funk. Funk says he's going to invent a new dance, the 10,000 volt electrified boogie or something like that. Anyway, which didn't happen because the cage wasn't electrified, but that'll come on the next uh, episode we talk about this. The next match is one that I also told you to skip, essentially, because it was Cuban assassin Fidel Sierra versus Wildfire Tommy Rich, who was returning to WCW, or the NWA, I should say. Um, even on the commentary, Jim Ross says that Rich disappeared into obscurity. Obscurity being Memphis. In the yeah. mid 1980s, he doesn't say Memphis, but he just says obscurity. In the, in the <laughs> mid 1980s, so was this a shot in Memphis, or is this a sh- what is this in aid of to basically say Tommy Rich just disappeared off the face of the planet for years? Yeah, there, there. Well, first of all, the one thing about Tommy Rich was, uh, if you remember back, they had uh, when uh, I think Kurt Henning was there in, in Memphis, they had this uh, cage match. Where, as I recall, that was the first time I'd seen on TV as a kid a crowd lose its mind. Uh, they had the cage match, and then afterwards, you see somebody come up to the, and they cut, they've been hiding under the ring, and they get in and they shave it. I mean, the fans were like trying to climb and get in. I mean, the, the place just went nuts. Uh, Tommy, when you go back and you watch like, that first iteration, again, the world was different. Uh, but boy, he came in. He was that first modern babyface. That babyface that could take that ass whoop and get busted open. All of a sudden, man, he started making that fiery comeback. He was the template that most babyfaces after fed off of. And, and so, like for me, I'm always willing to give the the, the credit where the credit's due for those guys. Uh, I was a mimicker. I mimicked the wrestlers that came before me. Uh, guys like Sabu. Uh, Tommy Rich then, uh, you know, Ray Mysterio Jr. later. These are transitional figures. These are people that once they're in the business, once they expose their wares, the business is different afterwards. I was a wrestler, but the guys that wrestled before me, uh, and there have been wrestlers after me. But those guys, made they, they took the business someplace different than before it. Uh, Tommy was not a big guy. Before that, you know, 
baby faces that got pushed were the bigger guys, your bruiser looking guys, you're the uh, you know, push the pushes like the bam bam pushes. Uh, suddenly here comes this, you know, comparatively smaller guy, gets his ass what boys won't say die. And that changed changed baby faced them after that. Uh, so you know, I give a lot of credit to that. This is the time, I think, with Jim Ross's comment, where you know, we had these camps sprout up, right? There, there were still you still had Portland, uh, you still had Continental, you still had Memphis, obviously. But by now, the WWF had become this growing behemoth, and uh, NWA was on the cusp of transforming into WCW and then into WCW. So you had these smaller territories are now sort of pulling in, still being fairly successful. Uh, but uh, this was the time where it's we're warring with this company, and these other guys are just you know, wannabes or pretenders or whatever. That would be my guess as to why there was that shot taken. And it could have also been something as easy as some kind of inside joke between him and and, and uh, Lawler or uh, somebody else at, at Memphis at that time. But th- by, by now, wrestling is becoming much more of a two-game race, right? It's a two-man race at this point. I uh, also noted that I don't know if it was a shot at Memphis, but Ric Flair had recently made shoot comments on a radio station burying Jerry Lawler as nothing but a joke world champion at the time. So I don't yeah. know if it's just something against Memphis. But uh, sticking with Tommy, could Rich... Right, so, I mean, I've interviewed Tommy, and I think I think he'd say... I don't know if he'd say or admit it, but basically he likes a drink. That's got in his way of his career. Um yeah. You know, we're not telling any tales out of school there. He'll say the same thing. Could, if Rich had been on the more straight and narrow, could he have been bigger? Because obviously, you know, he's he's huge in his early to mid-20s. And then when he comes to more national uh, companies like WCW or later ECW, it's in reduced roles, even though he's still a fairly young man. Could he have been bigger or was he always destined to be like a regional hit? Could he ever been like a national main eventer? Absolutely. Assuming certain things all being equal, uh, if he had you know gotten into the gym, worked you know worked on his bike. Remember, he's the young skinny kid, which is, I think part of what made that character, the selling and all of that. Uh, by now, he's ensconced. You know that, that generation of fans that he played to were part of. They hadn't left. They were part of what made this massive uh, group because more people were coming in. So absolutely. Excuse me. If Tommy had not gone the route of the, the drinking and the things that you said that he he would tell you, uh, absolutely could have been. And I think in many ways, probably could have been uh, had like his run as in the ring and then transitioned into the backstage area. Baby faces at that time, I can tell you, as a baby face at that time, uh, it was sort of just like fly by the seat of your pants. You know, you were learning stuff from different wrestlers, different styles every night, but nobody was coming to you and saying, okay, as a baby face, this is what a baby face is, and this is what fire is, and this is what a comeback in selling is. There was nobody doing that. And so you look back, and each of us had our own sort of way of doing it, and it was almost like you found it haphazardly. You sort of stumbled into it if you got it right. Uh, very rare that anybody in those dress rooms was saying, okay, let me educate you. Uh, and I don't mean to say that, like, in the flair sense, they were using it as a weapon, but like you would, I, I've mentioned this before. Like, if you went to the room at Pez Water, you're going to work, say, like a three month program with Pez. 
Pez is going to go into that and thinking, okay, I'm going to teach him this, this, and this. And just those three things. And he might occasionally throw something else in there, whatever. But that's his his goal is to get these three things into you. He's not worried about getting you up to the main event or even semi-main or even half card, the second half card position. His job is to teach you those few things, whatever the number is. And each person beyond that is, you know, going to be adding their two cents worth to it. I think Tommy, because he he was such the epitome, the, the epitome or personification, right, of a babyface, and what babyfaces had become by that time would have been invaluable to have as a coach in the back for us kids that were coming in at that time. Yeah, he, he most certainly could have. Now, Tommy Rich, unsurprisingly, because uh, Cuban Assassin was just brought in to lose pretty quickly, it seemed like. <laughs> I hate to say this, the fans were chanting boring throughout this match. And, Tommy had been away for a while, and the fans weren't buying him, apparently, at this point. Uh, now, uh, he wins with, of all things, a Luthers press. Now, we go to the back. Gordon Soley is interviewing Michael Hayes and Jimmy Jam Garvin. He's got... Uh, okay, I've actually written this down. And uh, I believe... Do you know what? I'm going to save this for the next episode, and I hate to say that because uh, we just don't... No, actually, do you know what? I'm going to bring it up. Jimmy Jam Garvin at this point, uh, Jim Cornette, according to Jim Cornette, uh, was absolutely on the gas at this point, and he was trying to get as big as he possibly could do, uh, and was almost trying to work like a road warrior style kind of thing at this point in his career. So, do you remember this point of the uh, new Freebirds and those coming in, and um, and, and also uh, Michael Hayes and Michael Hayes, but uh, Jimmy Jam Garvin basically completely trying to change the way he works to have like a more Smash Mouth style in a company that has Doom and the Steiners and the Road Warriors and Sid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I I don't, I can't say what one of Jimmy's machinations. Uh, my guess would be probably, you know, getting a little bit older and figured, you know, rather than doing a lot of the other stuff, uh, because, and I won't get into the match too much, but he has a sequence of, of, of a spot with Johnny where you see him, you know, going back to that old Jimmy Garvin style. Uh, my recollection of, of that time frame was that uh, it's hard to say what came first, the chicken or the egg. The, the Philadelphia crowd's reaction to us was 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 pretty notable. Uh, and at some point, you just you know you can't. It's a lot easier to swim downstream than up. But they were almost playing to that, you know. And, and as heels, uh, they yes. on that. Um, yeah, let the crowd continue to boo us. They, uh, that's going to be what that is. But they stopped being who they're supposed to be and started playing almost like the rules have been reversed, which I, I, I think brought it down. Uh, there was also at this time, this, uh, you know, we're, we're in the immediate aftermath of what had been the Freebirds, you know, a pretty prodigious run. So the, I think the fans were. They love Jimmy Garvin, and and the, the Philadelphia fans. They always love the heels. Uh, also uh, love the Freebirds, but now we're seeing this new version of it. As I, I recollect, I, I do apologize. For, do, do you no, think no. the Philly crowd really understood the Freebirds, the original Freebirds, and what they were comparing them to? Because the Freebirds never made it up to Philly, did they? No, but but again, we're, we're at this time now. The wrestling has been much like I was in Pittsburgh. I was able to catch the Freebirds and. You know, with cable and everything, and the Freebirds were, you know, again, pretty impactful uh, stable of, of wrestlers that were pretty ubiquitously known in and around wrestling. I think it helped the fact that 
it was in Philadelphia against the dynamic dudes. Uh, you know, like, like Chris said, isn't it funny that like a few, what, four or five years later, one of the top heels in the industry is going to be one of these guys getting booed uh, as, as a face. Uh, but they, they almost played to that. Like if you see there's play times when, you know, they're, they're almost playing babyface. Uh, my recollections of that match were Johnny exploded afterwards in the dressing room because uh, as we were like calling our stuff, they were like audibling and saying, no, do this. And, and I've talked about that before, like with Sean and stuff. When you're in a match trying to call a match, you don't, the action's moving. So you, your brain is already thinking like three, four moves ahead. And so you're calling to the stuff to get you there. And then somebody goes, no, this instead. Oh, no, now your brain goes, oh, back up and say, no, no, backdrop. And then just back forward again. And so it becomes this real herky-jerky fighting each other instead of working with each other to get to the destination of where of where you're trying to get the match. Uh, it, it was uh, uh, noteworthy to me that, that Jimmy, I did, I commented to Moose, I said, man, look how big Jimmy is. And uh, I hadn't remembered that prior, but then you said it now. Looking back, that would be my guess. You know, he's, Jimmy's getting on a little bit now, right? And, and Michael too. Uh, and you, you got two twenty-year-old kids standing over here, uh, full of piss and vinegar. That they, you know, that they, it's a lot easier to go out there and do this than arm drags or you know, dip backdrops or whatever. Uh, but once the match settled into itself, uh, even though there were all these other things going on and the backstory you could still see that there was still a semblance of the match being pushed together there. Uh, so like, to me, it looked almost like Jimmy and, and Michael were having fun. Oh my God, we're finally getting popped and cheered almost like with a Sid, Sid, Sid on the opposite way, uh, you know, getting caught up in that as opposed to focusing on what the match should have been. But again, at some point, you, you, you can't, nothing worse to me than when a heel goes out in front of a crowd and the crowd's completely quiet. And the, and the heel yells, shut up. If it gets any quieter, like you'd have to be in a library, right? It's, uh, it just looks silly and out of place. And, and at some point, they would have had to just, you know, go and play with it, uh, you know, with, with the reaction they're, they're getting because it's so not what the company is trying to portray. But, you know, why would you – if somebody's cheering you and you've been all as a heel – and all these years, you've been telling everybody how great you are in the Now they're cheering you. Why would you be pissed at that? Why would you fight back against it? Only in, if it's fake wrestling. I'm, but we're supposed to be getting booed, so we'll do this. Uh, it, it's it just to me. It was I was I think you said Moose had texted you. I was like chuckling to myself because I remembered being there. I used to get like as we were landing in places like Philadelphia or. Buffalo, New York, Troy, New York, places upstate New York. All those northeast cities are heel towns, big-time heel towns. And so one thing they weren't going to like was these smarmy, pussy-looking baby faces, right? Uh, you know, it's this poor booking by WCW to put that match on there. Uh, if, if they were looking for it, if they were expecting for Johnny and I to get over and them to get booed, that probably wasn't the place to do it. You know, you, you, they always say you know your audience, and uh, that clearly was <laughs> WCW again rearing its head. They didn't know their audience. Uh, you said that Michael Hayes was getting on in years. He just turned thirty. 
uh, a few well, months earlier. So. There's, there's Michael Hayes here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Well, at some point, he's got to be pickled and preserved for quite a long time. Yeah. Uh, 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 do you know what? Just because we're on Michael Hayes, and I really want to know about this, is I've actually written here, because you mentioned you know the beginning of the match was getting a bit clunky. There's something I wrote here. was The first proper spot in the match is that you throw a clothesline for Hayes to duck, but instead, he leaps into it like a salmon going upstream. Yep. And I thought there's something, there's a total disconnect of what was going to happen then. Uh, and then he takes a weird net breaker as well. Um, yep. Michael Hayes is a worker. Uh, forget about the charisma in the interviews and everything mm-hmm. like that. It's always been said that he was the charisma and the other guys surrounding him was the workers. But Michael Hayes, as a, as a worker to work with, what did you make of him? Middling? Not this. Not this. Just there. Uh, to me... It, it, even in this match, you can see like Jimmy is the shine, right? Uh, Michael has has all that charisma and he can do all that. And, you know, it's, it's like that in a lot of teams. I mean, look at, at Midnight Express. Stan Lane will be the first time. Bobby's the workhorse, right? Stan's going to get in and do his dancing and smile at the girls and do all of that. Uh, but, you know, Bobby was the was the engine in that team. Uh, so there's this isn't a, a, a slam of Michael. Uh, Michael was great because Michael was great on the stick. Michael was great because he had Terry Gordy and Buddy uh, Roberts with him, right? Uh, and now Jimmy. And Jimmy was, you know, not as a fairly decent worker. So, uh, but but there's, again, we talked about this with Mike a few seconds ago, uh, uh, Rotunda. The business is changing. The, the business is different than the business had been then. And I think that Michael was smart enough to identify that. There needs to be somebody with that charisma and the, the gift of gab and everything. So uh, I think it did play together well as far as the two of those guys together. I noticed the first thing you did. Remember, we had talked about this before with the Razor Ramon thing. If I want you to duck two clotheslines, both of those clotheslines are going to come with the same arm. And when he comes off to the second one, you can see like there's like some kind of like, like you said, like jumping into it or whatever. Uh and then I think right after that, you can see me trying to again call something to him, and it goes again, goes awry. Uh, I think at the time, and again, it's it's. It, I don't want to sound like I'm slamming guys. It, it, I, I'm trying to explain it in my own head. Prior to this time period, the heels would typically call the match, right? And so Johnny and I would typically be, if it was five, ten years earlier, would be listening to them and throwing our stuff in. But by now. It's becoming like sort of this mishmash, like catch as catch can. You call your stuff, we'll call our stuff. Once those transitions have been made, once we're out of the shine and the heat, we're listening to you. When we're going into the comeback, you listen to us. Uh, and I think it was very representative in that match as so I'm looking at it. And again, re- remembering in, in the dressing room back, Johnny throwing things and kicking garbage cans and stuff over, really pissed about that lack of chemistry in there. It was like I remember Johnny screaming, it's not supposed to be us and them, it's supposed to be us, us, all four of us, him screaming that in the dressing room with, with some pretty color expletives in between, <laughs> colorful expletives. Uh, but, you know, again, this is when the business is in transition. And look, one thing I can tell you for sure, certain is at this point, looking back, when you have a crowd that solidly one way, <laughs> and again, any of us could have told you before that show, that's going to be a heel town. Uh, to to just presume that you can go into that town because you're going to be televising it or pay-per-viewing it to other audiences 
it's, you know, for an audience in the South that are more babyface towns, watching the babyface team get booed like that, booed, like deeply booed, uh, probably not the best look. I mean, as a company, now you're pushing to pull against yourself. Okay, we want these guys over his faces, but they're going to get the shit boot out of them in this town. Poor booking. Now, let's go to the... Uh, oh, let's just see what I've written, quite frankly. I, I wrote this about a week ago, so bear with me, everybody. I can't quite remember the match. So it's a rematch of a tag title tournament final from June. This is, uh, by the way, Fabulous Freebirds versus Dynamic Dudes with Jim Cornette. Uh, some overdub music, of course. You walk to the ring carrying the skateboards, and then you stick a hat on a kid and a thumbs up to the wrong camera. <laughs> you both turn around going like that, and then, uh, uh, like that, yeah, which I thought was yeah. great. I really enjoyed that bit. Uh, Bad Street, or whatever their song was, was overdubbed. So I don't know, maybe the WWE doesn't own the rights to the uh, Freebird song that they made for it. Jim Ross claims that Michael Hayes was the first person to use rock and roll music as an entrance song. Somehow I'm dubious of that because there was a lot of entrance music happening beforehand, but he's probably the most famous of, uh, for doing it. Uh, uh, Jim Ross also says that both you and Johnny have degrees. So I always like that Jim yeah. Ross brings a little bit of the personal in with that kind of thing. Which yeah. Yours was in education, wasn't it, your degree? Uh, yes. Yeah. I, well, actually, at, my degree was in political science. This was 89. So, yes, I would have just gotten my education certificate right at right at, in 89, it was uh, three of 89. I got my education certificate, uh, went back and took those courses. And the reason that was always so well known in WCW and NWA was we would take the the, the, the G1, the private plane. And uh, <laughs> as we'd be flying back from wherever we were uh, at that night, flying back to Charlotte, I'd be in the very back seat, you know, they had, like captain seats, couches and stuff. It wasn't like a typical plane. And I'd have the light on, have my books, and be highlighting my books. Everybody else is getting drunk on the plane, and I'm, I'm over there like bookworm Eddie, you know. It's, uh, uh, but that, they, they had made a big point to talk about that because I, again, like you hear Jim Ross's call, and, and it was deft call where he says, you know, the business prior, you know, the two different generations. These guys came into the business as teenagers. These guys got their degrees and are now coming into the business. Uh, but, but there's a lot of more oddities than that between me and Johnny. It's sort of like the Kennedy and uh, Lincoln assassinations, right? Uh, Johnny and I both grew up in towns called New Brighton. He was New Brighton, Minnesota. I was New Brighton, uh, Pennsylvania. Uh, he had started in the business and gotten his degree. When I say started in the business, he started training and playing in the business with no intention, of, like much like I did. To not get into wrestling, to sort of stay in shape while I was at college, he did the same thing uh, because of his brother. Um, we late, later then both get into the business. Uh, so there were a lot of like commonalities like that, that that seemed strange. He had used his degree before he came into the business full time. I had been in the business full time and then left to use my degree. So there were these like sort of like Kennedy and Lincoln assassination comparisons, you know, that that would come up between me and Johnny. Uh, like I was telling uh, John, uh, Moose earlier, the thing that uh, as I look back, the one thing that jumped out at me, as you can see, even as at that young age, I'm in pretty darn good shape. Uh, our contract said that we had to be tanned, bleach blonde, and uh, have abs. So I would continuously get yelled at by the office and by the bookers and by everybody about Johnny. And I'm thinking, well, I ain't Johnny's dad. 
you know, I'm, I'm getting up and going to the gym every morning. I, I, it's not my job to hold his hand, go yell at him if you want to. Uh, but you know, just, just those little things that you watch back to that and, and, and uh, reminisce, you know, because you know, once you hear the crowd going, they are, like I said, I was, I was just laughing my ass off earlier because I remember back then I used to get nauseous going into towns like that. I like, got, uh, no matter how, it didn't matter how hard you worked, it didn't matter how good your spots were, didn't matter any of that. You were going to get chewed up and spit out. And then once you said, okay, well, that's what's going to be, just go with it. A lot easier. Did your contract also stipulate that you and Johnny had to look super gay in that in those like neon shorts? <laughs> no, they, they they came up with those things. The uh, again, the, like the things that you look back and you remember as you're watching it. Uh, what looked really strange is I'm so used now to the fringe on my boots. Uh, watching, you know, those the, moving around in those boots that they had made. They had those boots made oddly enough. They had never taken measurements. They had uh, Clifford Machias, uh, the great bootmaker, long since passed away. Best bootmaker in the business. Uh, if you look closely, we have sharkskin toes and heels and uh, eyelets up the sides. Sharkskin is almost oh, sharkskin is almost impervious. So, like patent leather will always wear out and crack and break off. Sharkskin it'll scuff, but it, you'll never wear it out. And uh, that was how the, later when I would make the franchise boots with the fringe, I would always be with Clifford Bacias. But those boots luckily fit me because they, they, they just got lucky, I guess. But if you look at Johnny's, Johnny's, when they pull the laces up, like there was no like leather and leather touched together because they just made these boots blind for us without any measurements. Uh, where did the rest of the outfits come from? Because we've got like neon short shorts and the caps and everything like that. <clears throat> was it just the style of the time, or was it? Was it well, the neon late eighties, everything was neon, right? Neon it became the big color and go to for everything. And uh, you know, they were just just because of us being together at that time is when they started putting those things together. I'm trying to remember who used to make our tights. I think, I, I think Johnny maybe had somebody making them, and. Uh, if you remember, there were times, I didn't even notice on this when we fast forward past it, where we would pull our, there were tearaway jersey or uh, uh, shorts that we'd wear over on the way to the ring. The problem was <laughs> that freaking Velcro, there were times when it would grab like it was bolted together, you know, and so like, you, like going out, you'd have to like just barely touch the Velcro or it wouldn't rip off that easy. And it just became like this whole, like this side would rip right off, this side wouldn't, or whatever. It just was so ill-conceived in the way it's played out. The interesting thing about the the the, uh, uh, the neon colors was that uh, uh, his name was Casey, Casey something. He was then of merchandising, and you know Johnny again was always thinking business-wise, and so Johnny said we've got to keep him close, so I keep him tight, staying good with him. So anytime we'd be at the bar, we'd always buy him drinks, take him out with us, that kind of thing. And that one year, that the summer that Johnny and I were together, they had me, Johnny, Tom, uh, Pillman, uh, Brad Armstrong. They were doing the Great American Bash Tour, like 75, six days long. The four or five of us were, we, had, we were to be at the building at one o'clock every day because they would do like a meet and greet earlier that day when they would sell tickets and stuff. So people coming through, would, they were selling the merchandise, of course, before you'd come through. And 
everything they put out of us sold because all the kids wanted neon stuff at that time. So they had hats, T-shirts, bandanas, uh, sunglasses, bracelets, uh, uh, tearaway jerseys or shorts. Uh, I mean, they had like a ton of dynamic dude stuff out. And every day there's pieces of this coming through that we're signing. So the contract said a third of every dollar, a third went to me, a third went to Johnny, a third went to WCW. And so every day we're looking at these like just thousands of dollars of stuff coming through every single day. And I kept waiting for the merchandise check. Well, I was on the road at the time. My mom was getting my checks. And months go by. And so, no, no, just, just the one check, just the one check. And finally I call home like four or five months later. And uh, we're, I, in my head, I'm thinking like, this is going to be worth like 30, 40, 50 grand for each of us, right? I mean, there's been a shitload of stuff come through. And I called home. Mom, my mom said, uh, hey, you got two checks, one green and one yellow. I said, open, open the yellow one. So she opens up and she goes, uh, I said, that's the merchandise. That's what I've been waiting for. And I talking about it. And she goes, well, it's not very good. I said, well, it's not, what's not very good? She goes, $9.98. I went, $998? Mm-hmm. She goes, no, $9.98. <laughs> I about had a stroke. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so point taken by, like, the young green kid doesn't know, like, uh, you know, the, the angles that they get played in wrestling. Uh, I think I've heard you talk before, you probably talked with me before, how the dynamic dudes got... I don't even know really how you and Johnny sort of got paired up originally, but the, the, the character of the dynamic dudes, was this a, correct me if I'm wrong, a Jim Hurd um, focus group kind of thing? Yes. Tell me. Yeah, so Jim Hurd, again, in his infinite piece of wisdom, <laughs> had commissioned a uh, study in California, with the thought being whatever starts in California works eastward, which is generally correct. Uh, most fads start there and then work our way. Um, the top uh, 10 words or whatever, and I words or phrases, and the top two were dynamic and dude, or dude and dynamic, which I, would, I don't know which one was one or which one was two. And in his infinite wisdom, if I take the first two words and put them together, that's going to make a great gimmick. Again, when I talk about the nuances, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, Johnny and I had debuted with Johnny had been the the uh, sheep herders uh, flag bearer, and, uh, and and we had gotten along pretty well. I think that was apparent to the uh, powers that be that we enjoyed being around each other, traveling together, and everything. And uh, we had debuted on the Music City Show- Showdown, which was the pay per view in in uh, Nashville that uh, Terry Funk Paldro Flair to the table. And uh, we had debuted on that pay-per-view as Johnny and Shane, the next generation or the new generation. And to this day, I can't remember which it was. And the next morning, we're in the hotel van to be taken to the airport. Eddie Gilbert is sitting in the front seat and Johnny and I are in the second bench. And uh, he goes, well, did you hear your new name? In my thinking, again, young and dumb as I was, I'm thinking, well, we already debuted. We're on a paper last. I can't change our name now. And he said, uh, told us about Jim, Jim Hurd uh, commissioning this study and came up with the name Dynamic Dudes. And I, I said, okay, I'll, I start laughing, right? I'm sure, Joe, sure, Eddie. And Eddie, was like, Eddie had a real droll sense of humor. Eddie, one of these. 
And I can tell by his face. <clears throat> I stopped laughing. I went, please tell me you're fucking ripping. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the shits. That night we were in Bristol, Tennessee. <clears throat> Flair, I told you, was the booker. So I see Flair. And I said, hey, I got to talk to you about this. This is the shits. And he agreed. With me, I think so, too. I said, please get it changed. And I can do it. And I can do and uh, of course, if he stepped in and said, "Hey, this is a crappy idea," uh, because what they were, the way it was portended to us when they first gave the idea of the, of the gimmick to us <clears throat> was that uh, the Rock and Roll Express by now is getting old. Uh, the uh, you know there've been these different incarnations of babyface teams, and this was the idea of what the next babyface tag team would look like. And so the next or new generation was, was what they settled on. And when it went to that, everything else sort of that they had played out to us, once that name came in, didn't make sense. They wanted us to be that, you know, white meat stuff. And if you look back at Rock and Roll Express, excuse me, uh, Ricky was phenomenal at selling. Uh, that was, but all, Ricky was also great at firing up. You know, when Ricky had to throw that fire, he could do all that. And somehow that got lost in that translation and fell to the wayside. Eddie uh, Gilbert, uh, rest his soul, had the idea of turning us heels. Like, give us like a six-month run as this dynamic dudes thing and then turn a stone-cold heel. And, uh, of course, that never happened. So uh, it was a shame. I, I would like to see what Eddie would have done with that. And ironic because when you uh, – I've told you the story before about Jim Ross, you know, after Ricky and I were together saying, anybody ever told you you're a stone-cold fucking heel? And I said, yeah, Eddie Gilbert. And, uh, uh, you know, so it would have to wait till later before I would start to get that chance. But, uh, you know, they, they, it was uh, – as soon as they tagged dynamic dudes onto it, uh, it was dead in the water. Uh, it really was like, even like the girls that had been coming with us and we, we had done a lot of tapings prior to the, uh, that pay-per-view. And then of course the pay-per-view, the girls were coming, the guys were getting involved with it, getting behind a little bit. But as soon as they clamped that dynamic dudes on, it's just like, what? It, it was untold to everybody. <clears throat> One more thing to end this on. Of course you are being managed by Jim Cornette. Uh, when, when did you find out that Jim Cornette was going to start managing you? And was it always... I've got several questions here. When did you find out Jim Cornette was going to start managing you? Did you always know that the story was that he was going to turn on you? And were you excited to have Jim as a manager? Well, we first learned of it, like, some... I think that was the idea once we started... Once they put the name on us and they could see that this wasn't getting over the way that they expected... <clears throat> I think they thought it was a way to rekindle Jimmy, like refuel him, put some more gas in his tank. Uh, it was portrayed to us that it would that Jim was going to be coming with us, and so that was why uh, the the way we're playing it out, uh, midnight now turning babyface, us being with Jim, you know, that was that that they were going to turn on Jim. And then we would be with Jim and fight back against them. That was what was originally portrayed to us. Where we learned that, that was not going to happen was on those runs up in New York, where I would get my arm broken and and uh, Johnny would be. Uh, somehow it came out there. I forget. Jim told us 
Flair told us. Somebody brought it up. In hindsight, it seems almost insane that they would have taken him off at Midnight Express. Uh, I don't know if they were waiting to see if maybe something worked, if something clicked with us. Uh, but as you're watching it, it's almost like the way Jimmy's playing. It's almost as if we've replaced Stan and Bobby, and he's still playing the same gimmick pretty much and same type of character. Just just a minor change from this side of the fence to that side of the fence. Uh, so, yeah, it was laid out there again, like with what we mentioned in last week's episode about Bill Goldberg. Uh, surprise, uh, the promoter didn't live up to what they were promising. Uh, that was, that was you know, something else. And again, I don't know. I've never heard any story as to whether he legitimately was planning on coming with us and then something changed or that was the plan all along. I don't know. Just to end on this, <clears throat> when Jim, and we'll probably do its own episode on the show. I can't remember if it's a pay-per-view or a, it may be a clash, actually, that the big turn happens. Did you realize that when Jim Cornette turned on you and realigned with the Midnight Express, the original plan was obviously for the Midnight Express and Cornette to be the bad guys going forward and then when Jim Cornette turned on you guys, uh, he ended up getting cheered vociferously. Were you expecting yes. that? No, no. I w- well, again, wherever that happened, it would have depended on on the uh, the, the town because I was always cognizant of, of what towns were heel towns, what towns were babyface towns. It just seemed to me that like the, the way it had been portrayed to us and laid out to us, it now made us look sort of silly and stupid. Like that, we trusted in this guy, and we, you know, we followed along. Uh, but moving forward from that, we assumed that this was going to give us a run, like a, a prolonged run with Midnight, and I was all for that. Uh, you know, anytime you'd be in the ring with those guys, it was phenomenal, right off. But uh, we did have a bit of a run with him. I, I can't recall how long it was, but it wasn't like Rock and Roll Express versus Midnight Express type. Build up. It was just here. It is, and there it was. And the town <clears throat> that Cornet turned on you was Troy, New York. <laughs> Barely two weeks later. <laughs> so I mean, if you're in Troy, New York, then you probably knew what you were going to get. Uh, Freebirds defeat Dynamic Dudes via pinfall. Johnny gets cut off from the ring. Shane gets the hot tag. Attempts a double back body drop on Garvin, only for Sh- uh, Michael Hayes to trip Johnny, and Garvin spins around to get the pin on Shane for the clean win. And there we go. That's the first half of Halloween Havoc 89. Did you want to say anything about the finish there? or? Yeah, I was just going to say like there were two things that stood out to me in, into the match. Uh, the one was uh, the heat. Most of the heat they had on Johnny was just like kicking him, keeping out of the ring. Uh, and, and the other was on that finish. I was, as soon as it happened, I remembered it. And I said, you know why they did it that way and not the other way, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, no, why is it? Because they didn't trust Johnny to be able to take that fall and pull him into position. So they wanted that they, 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 they typically would end up like that. That was my recollection of being with the dudes was that no matter who we were working with, they would come to me in the dressing room and say, you stay in the ring, uh, which wasn't fair to me. I wanted to be able to get out and breathe and, and, and take a breather too. Uh, and then when like a timing spot or something like that would come up, it would, the eyeballs would go, okay, let's, let's go to Shane for that. Uh, you know, I, I think Johnny was, at least at this this early period like this, 
he was bought in and he was working hard. You, there's, some of Johnny's work is always like a little herky-jerky because he, he, he didn't come in as a wrestler, like, you know, it was like a different pathway in. But he was working really hard. Uh, you know, we get to the buildings, we get out of the ring and that kind of thing. It was like he was really working hard to learn the craft. And at, at around this time, like when the swerve comes, uh, it, it, it's sort of like you know Bill Goldberg saying what he said about Vince or how many times I've said things over the years. It was like the realization went on like, oh, this isn't quite what I thought it was going to be. And, uh, you know, he would start slacking off a bit then, like not quite as putting much time into it as he had been. And, you know, and, and probably smart in doing that because why do that if it's going to be a throwaway anyway? On that, we're going to shut down this podcast. Thank you very much, everybody, for watching. We will be... Oh, I should have said this on the last episode, but normally we're out on Tuesdays uh, from... This will probably already come out, but I'm going to move this to Wednesdays now, purely because Dutch's, Dutch Mantel's second podcast is out on a Tuesday, so it makes no sense to have all the podcasts come out on the same day, essentially. So hmm. you'll probably know this by now because it came out on Wednesday for you. But thank you very much for watching. We'll be back next Wednesday with, I think, a fan question episode. Then the week after, that'll be uh, Halloween Havoc Part 2. So look out for that. Thank you very much for watching, and Shane closes out. Hey, good to see you again. Happy New Year to everybody one more time. See you next week's episode. Appreciate you sitting under the Franchise's Learning Tree at Franchise University. <laughs>